Today on Between the Lines, our desire to uncover the qualities at the root of our identity with Angela Nazarian. Welcome, I'm Barry Kibrick. Angela is the co-founder and president of Visionary Women, an organization that brings together thought-provoking thinkers to inspire others around the world. Now with her book, Visionary Women, she compels both men and women to reconnect with our own dreams and visions so that all can lead meaningful and gratifying lives. I'm a writer today because I was a reader when I was 11 years old. And it was... You do, need to, need, you do not need to prove your state of happiness to anybody. Most of these speeches were as much as a month in preparation. The characters, the heroes in this book are seekers of truth in, in a story that, that involved a lot of corruption. I don't get a chance to really talk about what's real. And that is the first Angela, welcome to the show. It is a pleasure to have you here on Between the Lines. Thank you for inviting me, Barry. It's such a uh, great experience to be here. Now, what I found fascinating is the book is called Visionary Women. Yet when I was reading it, I realized that like all visionaries, their words transcend gender. Absolutely. I really don't think in any way when you read leadership theory um, in, in school or anywhere else that it's gender specific. But I do think that women specifically go through experiences that men may not have. Well, and, and you catch that here. But I, and, and by the way, in this book is everyone from Maya Angelou to Helen Keller to uh, Marie Curie, Amelia Earhart, Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, just women that are, are so rich in soul and depth and the words that, that you share with us that are their words. But I also noticed that your observation mm-hmm. of their words were as, as valuable because it sort of, it helped distill it and bring it down to a, a level that uh, was really relatable. Thank you for saying that. You know, I try to use my background in psychology. I was a psychology professor for 11 years. And for me, the driver to anything I do is really that curiosity to find out what motivates a person to do what they do, what uh, made them be such an inspiration to generations, uh, what is it about these specific kinds of leaders that they are able to be trailblazers and push boundaries to where that nobody else has done before? And so that becomes really interesting to me. Well, you know, you say in your own words that it's because of certain values yeah. that's and certain character traits that they possess. So values and character for all of us, in a sense, when you... We could become our own form of visionaries if we, right. Im, Im, if we take to heart the words of their words and the words that you use because they're inspiring. And that's what allows you to then get a better enriched life. Yeah, I'm so happy that you mentioned this because I do feel that oftentimes um, we all fall under this uh, kind of trap that we think that our identity is very wrapped up with what we do in life. Um, but when we look at it from a larger perspective, it's really the values that we want to embody in our lives that define us. And that's the difference. 
And those values, you, you grow and your values grow. And you even remark that many of these women featured in the book didn't even come to their own visionary aspects until they were relatively later in life. And, you know, it, that was a big surprise to me because when I started uh, doing the research on all these women, I never thought that this kind of pattern would come out. But well over 50% of the women profiled in this book actually had a major transformation much later in life, towards midlife. And for many of them, their biggest work came after the age of 40, which is very interesting because we always feel that from a very young age, you should be very focused on what you're doing. And there is no trajectory that's straight. Rather, in our life, we change our value system. Certain experiences open certain opportunities for us. And, um, you know, one of my interviews with uh, the acclaimed uh, artist Shirin Nashat, she's an Iranian contemporary artist, she really didn't even create her art until age 42. And when I asked her why, she said that, you know, I studied art, but I felt that up until that time, I didn't have anything meaningful to share with the world. Oh, is it, and that in itself is visionary, isn't it? Just exactly. the ability to have that kind of awareness. Yes, and editing yourself in some ways that you know you kind of sit back and sometimes I say that a lot of the things that we do, we also have to see how how we refrain from the things that we think we should be doing and don't do. You know, Helen Keller, you can't help but think of as a, an interestingly way, a true visionary woman. Absolutely. And here she is born without sight, without sound, without so many things that, you know, obstacles. And at that time were really obstacles. There was, yeah. it's not that they're not always, but at that time in specific. Two things I want to bring out though. We all know about the relationship she has with Ann Sullivan that really uh, goes on for her, her life, her entire yes. life. But there's a woman that you mention in that particular chapter, and that quote, I thought, summed up the aspect of what this book is about. And it was by another teacher uh, and a confidant named Madison Taylor. Taylor. And she says, sight is the ability to see the physical world, while vision is the gift of seeing beyond it. And that's what these women and your writing does. It goes beyond the physical so that it reaches us at our deepest level. And quite frankly, it is that specific sentence that the entire book hinges around. Truly, it is exactly that sentence. And I'm glad I picked yeah. it out. Because, you know, I think that when we talk about visionary women, what does vision mean to us? Right. And it's about really feeling something that has not manifested itself. And, you know, I want to add one more thing with mm -hmm. Helen that you write about, your yes, words, yeah. and that is that not only did she prompt us, as you say, to question our relationship with other people that have disabilities, but as your exact words are, it helped us examine our own preconceived limitations. And if mm -hmm. anything that Helen offered more than anything was that, look, if Helen can do this, we need to re-examine ourselves and see all the real potential within us. And, you know, it's, a, it's something that I <clears throat> come up against often. 
that doesn't really happen unless there is some sort of wounding or some sort of crisis that really shakes the person at its, at his or her uh, foundation. I go back to the story of Catherine Graham, where, you know, her, she had an incredible memoir, and she spoke very frankly about her own life, how uh, before the age of 46, she thought of herself as a stay-at-home mom with four kids, and her husband was running the Washington Post, and she always felt that he was the real, um, so to speak, brain behind everything. And when he committed suicide, and she had to think about what she's going to do with the Washington Post, she truly summoned up a kind of energy and intelligence that she didn't even know existed within her. Uh, she uh, talked about how the first year when she decided that she's going to take on the helms for a few years until her son would grow up enough, uh, be an adult to run the company, she was so shy that uh, when she wanted to go to the Christmas party, she would practice saying Merry Christmas in, f- in front of the mirror. This is how introverted she was. Well, you know, you in that chapter, you make this observation, and it's based on what she went through. And it says, taking risks and facing challenges head on teaches us more about our abilities than any other life event. So it is through that adversity that we truly learn what we are about. And that, as you say, Catherine Graham's a perfect example of that. Yeah, and another person that I thought was very similar in terms of facing um, pain and obstacles head-on was Marina Abramovich. So many people know uh, Marina Abramovich because of her blockbuster show in uh, MoMA in New York where... Um, over 500,000 people came to see her while she sat silent and people would sit in front of her to stare back into her eyes. So a lot of people have very interesting perceptions of why she would uh, do the f- things that she does in her performing arts. And when I interviewed her, she had such thoughtful responses in, in terms of her motivation. And for her, she said, you know, In my daily life, I'm fearful. I'm very afraid of pain. But through my performance art, I really try to set up these really parameters for myself and see what is on the other side of pain? What's on the other side of boredom? What's on the other side of anger? And what opens up to me after I transcend those feelings? Well, one person who I think sums that up as well is Marie Curie. She says, we must have perseverance and, above all, confidence in ourselves. And, in fact, all of these women, they are driven with a deep passion, and they also have tremendous resilience because no one can get there without being slapped in the face, knocked down, punched around. So resilience is, is the key to... I think every single one of these. I don't think there's a single woman in here that without resilience could have uh, accomplished what they've accomplished. Absolutely. I think the two keys are just having an inner compass and resilience. And the fact that they're going to be criticized doesn't bother them so much. So that is the other side of uh, being really, really 
uh, not only hardworking, but also being able to persevere through hard times and challenges because you're going to develop some sort of psychological armor. You use, uh, I, I, I know her last name perfectly, Prada. Is it Mucha? Yeah, Mucha. 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 Mucha Prada. And Prada, everyone knows the yes, famous shoes and dresses and all that sort of stuff. But she says, it's the biggest mistake you can make to try to be someone you're not. So again, it's going inward, finding out what's in your roots, what your values really are. That's the thing that's going to give you the opportunity to experience life to its fullest. True. And I, when I think about her life, it's interesting that she actually was not trained in fashion. She had a PhD in political science. Um, she's never done market research in terms of what people in the public want. As a matter of fact, she has purposefully uh, played with a female form, going against these ideas of what um, sexy is. She always says that when you look at the geishas, they were completely covered up and maybe they weren't wearing shoes. And that must have been the most sensual visual cue for, for the, you know, public. And so she always says that her creations are a manifestation of her own evolving identity and she puts it out, you know, to the public. Now, one of those people that truly didn't experience their height until way after even middle age is Diane Nyad, the swimmer, who at 64 finally makes the voyage nonstop from America swimming to Cuba at 64. And she says these words, and I think this is also a key that you must have, a champion rekindles enthusiasm. And by doing that, you gain confidence and you gain that ability. You must have that enthusiasm within you. Otherwise, every little thing puts a chink in your armor and gives you a, you know, you know, just takes the sail, takes the wind out of your sails. And that goes to what you were saying about resilience, is that how at a low point in your life, you can summon up that kind of positive energy within yourself to say, I'm going to give it another try. And Diana, I mean, she is an incredible role model for a lot of people out there where, um, you know, research shows that that kind of resilience or um, comes about uh, largely at later in life because you've had so many challenges and depths of experiences that you have more to pull from. You know, also you, 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 you make it very clear in your words how difficult change is because these women actually did experience, so, as you said, it wasn't a linear path. Many of them zigzagged to their visionary yes. level. Some might have reached there earlier. Some might have reached there later. Some might have had an idea of what they wanted. But there was a lot of zigzagging around. And and they're thinking about the future. And you st- say these words that I think are important. Stop imagining that person in the future as a stranger. And instead, see that it's you. Because that's what we do, isn't it? We think of this glorious future, but, ah, uh, you know, we can't do that. But no, you say, think of that person in that future and realize it's you. Yes. You know, I remember once uh, Oprah did uh, an interview with uh, Maya Angelou, 
And uh, I think that even Oprah early on said that there were certain kinds of persistent feelings within her of not feeling um, worthy enough for what she's doing, not deserving enough. And Maya had told her, you fake it until you make it. I think in simple words is that the more that we try to, from the inside, work with those feelings that are similar to who we want to be, the closer we get to that destination. That by embodying those values that are you see in the future, right now in the present tense, you will somehow push yourself along in that path. Joseph M. Wanted with the Constitutionalist Politics. Tune in for the upcoming episode for May 4. Issue, never the issue, as well as guests Peter Serafin, Rosemary Downer, Don Gallade, Gista the Rapper, Cy Young, Jason Perry, and upcoming Jack Hagar, Andrew Thorpe King, Trent Rock, Ed Temple, Chris Morehouse, and more. Please tune in to Constitutionalist Politics. God bless. Now, here's something that I think is interesting. These are your words. A reserve of untapped potential can be unleashed when one is given, and then you specifically put a little dash, or better yet, seizes opportunities because sometimes we wait for those moments and it is better for us to sometimes not just wait for them but to seize them even before they come a knocking so to speak Uh, and that comes into play in terms of how aware are we about our own needs and also what's going on uh, around us sometimes you know uh, Carl Jung used to talk about synchronicity that sometimes when you're working on something yourself, some event presents itself in the outside world that's reflecting your need. And how important it is for us to be so sensitive to our own needs and also aware of what's going on around us to seize an opportunity. And part of that, you say, is we're able to do that when we find our own voice. I think that's the thing that has to come first almost because otherwise we won't recognize what the opportunity that is waiting us should be if we don't know who we really are. And that's the dichotomy as well, Barry. I've been thinking about that because I think sometimes through the action we also find, uh, through the act, we also find our voice. I think that when Maya Angelou for the first time wanted to sit down and write her autobiography, uh, she was really dealing with a lot of uh, um, inner talk about what makes me feel so special that I can write a book about myself. But the fact that she went ahead and did it reinforced the fact that she had a voice. So it is a self-fulfilling process, uh, prophecy where sometimes doing the act will also reinforce your voice as well. Speaking of voice, I want to use one more of your voices. Courage is linked directly to our ability to deal with fear and failure. Yeah. And I oftentimes uh, think about courage in the sense that courage sometimes entails an act of transgression, that you're doing something that you feel is beyond the normal bounds of 
what you do usually. And that act of transgression suddenly opens a big playing field for you. And it's oftentimes fraught with a lot of uncertainty and fear. And when you stand up and you do something, you never know what the real destination is. And so courage and faith also play together in some ways, those two attributes. That if you have enough faith that you will come out okay, you're more willing to use your courage to do new things. Well, that's why you say that in the book, these women are not even seeking immediate validation. Yes. That's the other key. We all, in especially in our modern society, we think if we don't get recognized right away or if we don't get that validation right away, you specifically say, in fact, that you know, their unwavering commitment to their goal really doesn't even, it, it never even enters their mind whether they get yeah. validation or not because the goal is way more important for them. And so much more deeper in meaning in who they are than just what the public says, that their goal really resonates with something that is really uh, to their core. It really reflects their core belief system. This, I think, is something, too, because, as I said, they're not just visionary women, and you make this point. We all share the dream of growing, and I'll use your words, and thriving in our own lives. And I think that's where we started with before yeah. when I said that the, what makes a woman a true visionary is that we all can relate to it because we all really, on some level, have a little bit of visionary within ourselves. We all do, we all do. And I think that uh, if we want to stay as vibrant and um, vital as we want to be, I think every seven to 10 years we'll go through a transition period and we need to regain a new vision of who we want to be. So evolving into uh, our next self is always, it's a, it's a progress, it's a process that we need to look at every once in a while. Now, in the very beginning, you did say that there was a little difference between women and men when it comes to being a visionary. And I think here it mm. is. Men, I don't believe, at least in the past, and I think now it may be different, but in the past, they, they could be more focused because they weren't as attached to the family That's aspect. True. And there are various stages, you say, in building a career and a personal life. And I think if there's anything that separates the, the visionary women from the visionary men is they can't separate and decompartmentalize that because many of them, not all of them, but there are those that have children, they have to raise a family, yeah. they have to do all those things. As you said, even with Catherine Graham, she had to deal with the death of her husband, raise her children, and build this major right. newspaper conglomerate into what became one of the greatest sources of journalism there is. So that is, if anything sets apart a visionary woman, I think it is that key, because they still have that maternal instinct, and yet so much vision has to step aside out of that. But it also might add a certain smoothness to the vision. Well, 
You know, it's all about having uh, what we in our own lives feel is a well-balanced life. So what may be balanced for me may be different for another person. But there's so many women in the book, when you look in their personal relationships, uh, their significant other, their partners, their husbands, were a very big source of support for their growth. We think about uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, and when we talk about certain obstacles that females face, you know, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor was graduated the top of her class. And when she wanted to find a job, nobody would give one to a woman at the time. Um, so she talked about how she tried to just get a job. Well, not a job. She volunteered her time. And she said, let me come for free. Let me work for free. And she made herself invaluable to the company and she got hired. But when she decided to go to Washington to become uh, justice, her husband had to move. And he was more than supportive of the track that she was going on. But it was a give and take because later on when her husband uh, um, got uh, Alzheimer's disease, she had the painful, she made the painful decision to stop and move back to Arizona to take care of him. But she doesn't regret it at all. She says that that has been a part of a well-lived life where her relationship with her spouse was equally as important as what she was doing out in the world. Well, it goes back to how we started and it's how we're going to end because she had the passion both as a wife and as Supreme Court Justice, and I'm going to end with these words. Passion is the fire inside us that fuels us. It adds depth to our lives. Thank you, Angela, for adding depth to our lives today. Thank you for inviting me, Barry. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you all for joining us. Now, before Angela leaves, I'd like to leave you with these words from visionary women. There are times when life unceremoniously rips us from our comfort zones and thrusts us into predicaments that may seem horrible, decimating, and even perhaps unmerited. However, faced with that devastating landscape, one has the opportunity to forge a new foundation and to emerge more confident and engaged than ever before. I'm Barry Kibrick. We all face those moments in life that feel like we will never break through. But if we pay close attention to our real inner selves, between those moments, we will emerge more confident and engaged than ever before. Thank you so much, Angela. Thank you. My it was ple a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, please subscribe or become a patron of the show at barrykibrick.com to keep it going every week. Thank you.